Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. Um, We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. And we're very glad you're here. Uh, We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. So it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Please say with me the words by which we light our chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Out of the dusk, a shadow, then a spark. Out of the cloud, a silence, then a lark. Out of the heart, a rupture, then a pain. Out of the dead, cold ashes, life again. We gather in this congregation with roots and practices in many world religions, including secular humanism and atheism and neo-paganism. We gather in many different cultures. Our aim, our highest value is to be welcoming. Welcome is something that happens one time and it happens in an ongoing way as well. One of the things you have to know in order to keep your balance enough to be welcoming, even when you're not feeling good inside, is you need a mission. You need something that guides you into the future. This congregation wrote its mission, and we wrote it on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Break you. Nobody can protect you from that. And living alone won't either, for solitude will also break you with its yearning. You have to love You have to feel. It is the reason you are here on earth. You are here to risk your heart. You are here to be swallowed up. And when it happens that you are broken or betrayed or left or hurt or death brushes near, let yourself sit by an apple tree and listen to the apples falling all around you in heaps, wasting their sweetness. Tell yourself... You tasted as many as you could. Now is the time in our service when we breathe together to enter into silence for meditation and prayer. In this space of silence, we speak to God as we understand God, or we listen, or we listen to our inner wisdom. Or we just follow our breaths as it moves in and out of our bodies. It is in this silent stillness that all the major religions of the world say we receive clarity and wisdom. We blossom into compassion. We sink our roots deep into the heart of love. Let us enter into the wise silence together, mindful of this congregation, 
tiny noises of tiny babies and noises of life count as part of the silence. Happy Easter, everybody. Thank you. I told a member of the church that I saw here during the week that I was going to talk about Jesus this morning. And she said, well, I'm not coming then. Been there, done that. (laughs) And I said, really, I have been here for six years. This is my sixth Easter sermon. And I have preached about everything else (laughs) for six years. And I'm going to... I'm going to do some Jesus talking today. It's going to be all right. I'm not going to suddenly turn into someone else, tell you what you have to believe. And I want to gently remind you that we, our people, our people don't believe in hell. So that's off the table. Some of you will wonder why I'm being so careful hedging the beginning of this sermon around with all of these caveats and others among you somewhat triggered even by the two syllables of Jesus name will understand why Jesus is a Roman pronunciation um, of the Hebrew word Yeshua which is what uh, Rabbi Jesus's real name was but because the whole culture he grew up in was Roman supremacist culture, uh, everything became Romanized. And so even now, we call him Jesus. Um, I want to tell you that I approach most scripture talking in a kind of a Jungian way. I was raised to be... Jungian. My Aunt Ruth was a Jungian analyst psychiatrist, and um, I studied Jung at Duke in college, and I studied Jung in Princeton at seminary, and I studied Jung after I graduated, and I studied Jung some more from a retired Jungian analyst who had moved from Connecticut, where you would expect to find a Zurich-trained Jungian. She had moved into the Appalachian Mountains to Pea Ridge, North Carolina where she taught me and many of the Episcopal priests in the area um, some more Jungian stuff. And so I've been asked by all those teachers to imagine that your individual consciousness is like a tiny island of dry land in the middle of an enormous sea. And the sea is the gathered wisdom of all humanity and perhaps rocks, trees, antelopes, giraffes as well. It's the collective unconscious is what Jung called it. And there are images and stories floating around in the collective that may not be historical, um, but are nevertheless true. True wisdom is in the faith stories of human people, and true wisdom is in the folk stories of human people, and true wisdom is in the fairy stories of human people, and you just have to be open to it. And so, there is a story of the God who uh, dies and rises again that is in many, many 
cultures. But in this culture, of course, the Christian story is somewhat different because I'm not going to say, and they're all the same, because that's disrespectful. I want us to let go of the idea that it has to be historical in order to be true. Because most of us are educated enough, sophisticated enough to know that even history is not historical. Feel me? It's written from a certain point of view. It's written with a certain agenda in mind. It's written by the people who were on top, powers that be. The powers that be wrote all the history, and so everyone who's not part of that powers that be level gets erased, forgotten about, sometimes by accident, just because, oh, yeah, I guess there was a woman astronomer back there somewhere. I don't know. Or on purpose. So, let go of the idea that it has to be historical. It's a mistake to base your faith on the idea that it has to have really happened. I think. Again, all this is just my opinion. That's also the kind of church this is. So, we have the true, but perhaps historical in a spotty way, we don't know for sure, because the first accounts of this story were written 30, 40, 50, 60, up to 90 years after the fact. So we have the story of Rabbi Jesus and the story of Holy Week leading up to Easter. Here's how it goes. Last Sunday was Palm Sunday. The reason they call it Palm Sunday is because Rabbi Jesus knowing that he was in trouble with the authorities, went into Jerusalem where the authorities lived. He was in trouble not only with the religious authorities, but with the political authorities, because he kept saying things that made people think questionable thoughts about the way things are. The religious authorities were angry with him for challenging them, and the political authorities were angry with him for challenging them. He did not have to go back to Jerusalem. He could have just lived his life, gone into Egypt, and faded away. But he rode into Jerusalem. Now, his people, his, his fans, his followers, wanted him to be a great military leader. Because we are very satisfied as human beings with a great show of military power. We love it. We, we put country music behind it and turn it way up so we can watch the bombs fall satisfyingly. Um, we don't think farther than that usually. And some of his fans, some of his followers, his people, wanted him to ride into Jerusalem on a great big horse and then drive the Roman occupation out of their country because it was about time. Instead, He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not very powerful militarily. Some of the people still said, Hosanna, praise be, and put palm fronds under the hoofs of his donkey as he rode in. Those were the people who were still trusting him, even though he wasn't approaching this the way they had wished he would. 
So he came in as the Prince of Peace. He came in as a person who was going to attack the problem, not in a superficial way with might, but in a radical way by getting to the root of the problem, which was by showing people what love looks like. So Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem. Does he lay low, hanging out with his disciples, teaching them a couple last things? No. He goes to the temple, and there are money changers in the temple because people were coming in for the Passover holiday. You need to make sacrifices. You've got to buy doves. You've got to buy lambs. You've got money that's from your country, and the people who are selling the doves don't take your money, so you've got to get your money changed. And, of course, there are shipping and handling fees and extra line fees and all those kind of fees that goes along with some interest. And so the people were getting bilked at the temple because that, that, that group of people, the sacrifice sellers, were all about the money. Did Jesus come in and say, let's, let's form a discussion group about this. Let's see how we might gradually change this culture of cheating the strangers. No, he did not. He was not a respectability politics guy. He was not a gradualist guy. He was a, I'm going to take my hands and I'm going to throw your table up in the air and the money's going to go everywhere because I care about a lot of stuff, but your money is not one of the things I care about. He was in trouble even more with both the religious and political authorities because the merchants complained, of course. He had been violent in his passion that the temple be made right. Then he did some other uh, he did some other little stuff, kind of uh, odd stuff. And one of the things that is odd that's in the middle of this story is that he went to he went to get some figs from a fig tree, and the fig tree didn't have any figs. And he got mad, and he cursed the fig tree. He said, I don't care if you never have any figs. May you never have figs. It doesn't sound like the Jesus we know. Um, It's a little bit of an outlier story, and yet there it is, which I love because people get a little too comfortable about, oh, sweet, Jesus is in this little box, and oh, he would never do anything like that. What would Jesus do? He would curse the darn fig tree. He would throw the tables over. Put that in your little bracelet. (laughs) That, by the way, is how some protesters of the Westboro Baptist Church people, they, the protesters, hold up a very biblically accurate sign that says, God hates figs. Really, I do wish people would actually read the Bible for themselves rather than just listening to the preachers. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Yeah. (laughs) And so Thursday night is when he was having a meal with his disciples. He said things that they didn't understand, like, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
One of his disciples had been paid off to alert the authorities as to where he was. And the authorities came, the soldiers came and got him from that meal in the garden. They took him to Pontius Pilate, who was the puppet ruler of the time. The Romans had put him in place. He enjoyed his place, his puppet ruler lifestyle. And he wanted to make sure that the authorities were kept happy. Both religious and political authorities were kept happy. He had a little, he tried to have a little arch, uh, abstract, philosophical discussion with Jesus. Like, you're a teacher. Tell me, what is truth? Well, Jesus wasn't playing. He didn't play that. And... Pontius Pilate turned him over to the soldiers to be tormented. They beat him up. They made him carry his own cross to the place where they crucified criminals. He couldn't carry it the whole way, so they grabbed a guy out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene. They grabbed that guy and made him carry it part of the way. Not the Bible, but church tradition in the Roman Catholic Church says a woman came out of the crowd, Veronica, uh, they named her. She came out of the crowd to dry his face. He had blood, sweat, tears on his face to dry his face with her with her veil, which I think is a beautiful. Then, you know, this is what church people do. Church, not all church people, of course, but over the years, people embroider and they don't have to. I don't know why they feel they have to. Is this story not good enough? But no. They said she gave him her veil and he wiped his face with it and it came away with a with an image of his face on the veil. Come on. Why? Why? This man who is a divinity has become flesh and is letting himself be broken by human beings to show how much the divine loves humanity. And you have to have his face come up on the veil. Why? Bothers me. <laughs> they took him to be crucified in between two thieves. Two other thieves were being crucified at the same time. They, the Roman soldiers, did some more tormenting, some more humiliation. Um, a couple of people waited around till he died. His mom course, like moms do. His body was taken down and put in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. Only the wealthier people had tombs, and so he borrowed, they borrowed this tomb for him, um, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And when you, when you look at biblical archaeology and you see what the, what the, the tombs look like, you see that they were cave-like openings in the rocks. Jerusalem's a very rocky, rocky town. And there are openings in the rocks, and then they normally um, kind of corked up the opening with a cube-shaped stone. Just push it in there. And there were some stones. This is the problem for biblical scholars and literalists is that um, the text says the stone was rolled away, and they go, it was a cube. How could it be rolled away? Weren't there some round stones? Yes, there were, but they were mostly for the tombs of queens and kings. It would not have been Joseph of Arimathea's tomb to have a round stone. So how was it rolled away? You wouldn't believe the amount of ink that is spilled by theologians trying to figure out how you could say this cube was rolled. Again, come on, why? You're, you're missing the point of this whole story. So then the story goes on to say that on Sunday morning, two women came to the tomb 
and they saw the stone was off the mouth of the, t- the tomb, and the tomb was empty. Where is he? And they saw they saw physically or in a vision uh, a, an, an image of a person, an angel, saying, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not dead. He's alive. That's what Easter's all about. The he's alive part. Most churches don't really talk about that the resurrection was announced to two women first. Um, Back when they were telling us that women couldn't be preachers, we said, yeah, but two women were the first ones that were told to go tell the good news. They were like, well, they were were proving that lowly messengers could be used uh, to... uh, Give a good message. The, the, the very rocks and stones would cry out. Uh, so two women. Uh, <laughs> the story goes on to say that many of his disciples saw either physical or mystical visions of him. Um, then the apostle Paul, um, by the way, some little wisdom for you. Uh, apostle is a name for someone who saw the risen Jesus that's now called Christ because Yeshua was his human name. Christ is the role that he plays as the risen one. So if you've seen the risen Christ, you're an apostle. Paul was never one of the disciples. In fact, he was a, a persecutor of the disciples, but he saw the risen Christ who told him to, you know, quit persecuting those people. And, um, and so he's called the apostle. And the other disciples who saw the risen Christ are called apostles as well. All right. So so this story, as I said, parallels other stories of a dying and rising God. 1,600 years before Jesus, there was a Sumerian poem. Sumeria was the modern-day Iraq and Kuwait. Um a Sumerian poem about a goddess named Inanna. And Inanna goes into the underworld. She descends into the underworld. And at every level, seven levels of the underworld, something is stripped away from her. She has to give her crown. And then she has to give her bracelets and her belt and her breastplate. And pretty soon, not pretty soon, but as she gets to the bottom, she's naked. Um, She's she's going to her brother-in-law's funeral. Her sister lives down there in the underworld. And uh, her sister is a mean girl. And uh, so her sister hangs her naked up on a hook down underneath the ground, and she hangs there for three days until a friend of hers, uh, in the form of a fly, comes and whispers in her ear and revives her. And Inanna then emerges from the underworld alive again. This also parallels you know, in ancient agricultural societies, this also parallels the the cycle of life of, of the plants that give us life. You know, if you plant a tomato seed, you put it down into the earth where it's dark and the seed breaks open and the life comes out of the seed and finds its way to the light and life again. And this is a great mystery. You have the shoot... You have the flower, you have the seed, you have the death. You have the shoot, you have the flower, you have the seed, you have the death. Shoot, flower, fruit, seed, death. Sorry, I'm not a biologist. Um, and so what, 
what Christian theologians say is, yes, but this dying and rising is not cyclical. It is one time only. That's part of that story. It's one time only. He doesn't do this over and over again. But this is a parallel also in our own lives, and it's often shown um, in ancient cultures as a spiral because you, you have this spiral journey down into death and then back up into life again. And sometimes it's shown as a labyrinth. Like in Chartres Cathedral, you can go down to the very um, basement of this um, uh, of this cathedral and there's a labyrinth and the and the difference between a labyrinth and a maze by the way is that a labyrinth never tries to confuse you or trick you a labyrinth you just have to put one foot in front of the other and walk where it says walk and you get to the middle and then you come back out again very different from a maze a maze is a whole different uh psychic story so a spiral or a labyrinth are ways of representing this journey into death and back out again. And we as human beings take this journey really over and over again. We take it one big time. You know, we, we take it, we go down into death and we come back to life. Um, we have different beliefs about how that happens, but uh, we are part of nature. And so the very basic, most basic belief is that we come back to life as part of the trees and grass. It doesn't take any faith to believe that. And I like that story. Um, and other folks believe that you are reincarnated, and other folks believe that you are resurrected, and you go to live with God in heaven. So life again after death is the pattern. What about when you have things stripped away from you during your life? You have you have hopes that, that get dashed. You have dreams that don't come true. You really want a baby, and you never are able to conceive. You really wanted this job, and the job, the door closes in your face, or you lose the job after having had it for a while, or you lose someone you love, or you have financial terrors and you lose everything in that way, or your body turns on you and you um, suddenly have this body that doesn't work the way it used to, and your identity is threatened by that. So you feel many times in your life like, Things are being stripped away from you. You're making a journey down into the underworld or down toward a kind of a death, the death of who you hoped you'd be or the death of who you thought you'd be or the death of who you thought friends, your friends were or the death of what you thought friendship was or the death of a love. And and what Easter tells us is that out of the dead, cold ashes, life again. What nature tells us is that out of the dead-looking ground, comes life again. Christianity says that Jesus as the symbol of our soul goes down into death and then leads us out again toward light and life. So I think that's the point of the story. Now I am a person who was raised Christian went to a Christian seminary. I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. And so I think I have given Christianity a very good shot. And for me, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, for me, I am like the person in the, in the Rabbi Jesus parable, the sower. And the sower is sowing seeds and throws some seed that lands in the weeds, and so the weeds choke out the seed, and throws some seed that lands on the hard-packed path, and so the seed can't get in, and then throws some seed on fertile ground, and the seed grows. 
so for me, if the sower is, is throwing out the Christian stories, my spirit and my mind and heart are like that hard, packed path. The, the boots and heels have walked over this ground in my heart so many times. Really, there's almost no way in for these stories for me. But I try to find a little piece of fertile ground that I can put them in. But I love the story. It's a very rich story for a lot of people. And the story is that, number one, if you're a disruptor of the powers that be, you're going to be in trouble and you need to get ready. Because the powers that be are coming for you. They do not like to give up power. No power is given except that you demand it. They will try to kill you. And if you really want to change the way things are, you got to be willing for that to happen and walk right in on your donkey to face it. The second thing this story means, and I, and I do not think it means what I, I separate Christianity from churchianity. And I, and I claim that churchianity is mostly what I was raised with. And it doesn't seem like the actual religion of Jesus. So churchianity says um, God set up the world so that he had to kill his only son to cover with blood the sins of you. And that does not make sense to me. And I asked myself, and I asked in seminary, really, to no avail, why couldn't God just forgive? Because God is God. And God could say, I forgive you. Because I say I forgive you. I'm not a better person than God. I don't say, I'll forgive you if you give me some blood. That's not, that's not the way that, that human beings do it. Why would it be the way God does it? Are we better? I mean, why this whole story of a loving father who kills his only son because of something that I did sounds like abuse. And I can't wrap my mind around it. And that is possibly a fault in me. But I like it better that Jesus was uh, showing what God's love was like. Jesus was coming not not so that the divine goes like this. Oh, you poor people, how you suffer. I'm so sorry to see that. I have pity on you from my privileged heights in heaven where really nothing can touch me. No. The story of Jesus said God felt moved by humanity and came to join us, solidarity, in our suffering. Didn't pat us and say, I pity you came to join us. That's what love does. Solidarity is what love does, not pity. I like that much better. And then the Easter part of the story is that the great love comes with us down into death and then leads us back to life and light again. Over and over. May it be so. Will you please say with me the words by which we uh, extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts.
until we are together again. Remember the way of the wind and breathe and blow. Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ever flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. Go in peace. I'll be out there as fast as I can.